This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg find that in the splitting of the sea, when Hashem blew this wind all night, this wind caused the water to act as, as a solid. The water remained water, the water remained liquid. That was the miracle. It wasn't a one-time miracle that Hashem miraculously turned the water into stone. The water remained water. The proof is, because had the miracle been that Hashem transformed the water into stone, there would have to be another miracle in the morning when the Egyptians came in, another miracle to transform the stones into water. That's not what happened. The moment this wind ceased, the wind was blowing all night. And it's that wind that kept on blowing that miraculously transformed the nature of water, of a liquid that usually flows, and here, liquid acted, acted with the properties of a solid, that it stood erect. The moment the wind stopped, the water reverted back to its nature. There was no need for another miracle. There was one miracle. The constant miracle of keeping the water, transform, changing the nature of the water, that liquids flow, and here liquids remain solid. It didn't turn into ice. It was water. And it had the properties of a solid in the sense that it stood still. It stood like a wall. The moment the miracle stopped, the wind stopped, the water reverted back to its nature. So he's going to say, so he says, if in the case of, of changing the nature of a liquid to the nature of a solid, there had to be a constant force and a constant energy to maintain this change. How much more so? The change between non-existence and existence is much more dramatic than a change between this type of existence or another type of existence. This type of nature, this characteristic trait, and a different characteristic trait. Because the characteristic trait of standing is, is, isn't exactly just a novelty. Solids have that characteristic trait. They don't flow, they stand erect. So to change the nature of a liquid to the character, that should have the characteristic traits of a solid, act like a solid, stand, stand erect like a wall, is not as, a dram- as dramatic of a change as the change between non-existence and existence. It's much more dramatic change. So if in the case of just changing the characteristic traits of a liquid that should have the characters act as the characteristic traits of a solid, it took this dramatic energy and force that wind all night at the blow and can constantly, continuously change uh, the nature of the water. 
how much more so that to bring something into existence from non-existence because we don't exist in the source. We're un- it's unprecedented. It's not like cause and effect where the effect exists in the cause. We don't exist in the source. We simply don't exist. The source, our existence, is non-existence. So we don't exist. So to bring us into existence, you need a constant force to continuously and constantly bring us into existence. So creation is ongoing. It's dynamic. Not that God created the world in the past, 5,776 years ago. God is creating the world at this moment, as we speak. And God would cease to create this world at this moment, to bring you and I and the table and the chair and everything that exists into existence. We would revert back to our natural state, which is nothing. Not only nothing. It's as if we never existed. It's as if we would never exist, have, have existed. Our whole existence is nothing other than the divine energy that's constantly creating us. When you imagine something, it's your imagination that gives it existence. What happens the moment you stop imagining? You have to kill <laughs> the character that you dr- dreamed up. You have to stab it, you have to bury it, you have to order a funeral put an obituary in the paper (laughs) the moment you stop imagining it it's as if it never existed because it only existed because you're imagining it so if you're imagining it and you're creating it it exists the moment you stop imagining it the character ceases to so God is constantly creating us we have no existence we have no independent existence it's not like we can stand on our own for a split second. We have nothing. We're absolutely nothing. We exist because God wishes us to exist because He's imagining us and He's speaking us and creating us at this very moment. The moment God stopped thinking about us and stopped speaking, speaking us into existence, not only we cease to exist, it's as if we never exist. To that extent, So if you truly understand the idea of creation, that God is constantly creating us, then you understand that nothing happens in this world without Hashem. It's more, it's not just that God is the soul of the world. So just like within the human organism, the human body, our own personal experience. Nothing happens without the soul. When the body moves, your pinky moves. Who moved? Your pinky moved. Your pinky is a, your body is a corpse. On its own, your body is a lifeless piece of clay. The body is alive. All hundred trillion cells are alive. It's the soul that's alive. So the slightest movement in the body, there isn't any movement in the body without the soul. So too, you understand, if you believe in God, and God is the soul of the world, you understand that God not only creates the world, but God is in control of the world and runs this world. It's not that God is the cause and we are the effect and 
God is the original cause, and once in a while he intervenes or interferes just to show that he's around. That you shouldn't forget him. That he is the original cause, and he is the almighty and the omnipotent, the omniscient. No. Jewish faith is a God that runs this world. That's why a Jew always prays to God. You need anything in your life, whatever you need in your life, whether it's health, peace in the house, success, whatever you need in your life, you pray to Hashem. Because God runs this world. He controls the world. He's in charge of the world. It's not that He created the world and then He abandoned and left the world in its own devices. That's the simple understanding of Jewish faith. But here he's saying on a much deeper level, not only that God is the soul of the world, but the body has an existence without the soul. When the soul leaves the body, the body doesn't disappear. (laughs) The body is there. You have to bury the body. The soul exists without the body, and the body exists without the soul. Just the two merge, and then the soul, the body is completely egoless to the soul, and the soul is in charge and prevails and dominates and rules. And... But here it's much deeper. Without Hashem constantly creating us, there is nothing. So, so the, the connection between Hashem and, and the body and the world and the universe is so much more intimate. It's not that there's two separate things. The body and the soul are two separate entities. The body and the soul, but they merge and they become one and inseparable and the body totally prevails, the soul totally prevails. Here we're saying the world is so unified without God, there is nothing else but God. There's only one reality. There are no two entities. Not that God is the soul and there's a body. There's us and there's God. No. All there is is God. There is nothing else. We only exist because God is imagining us and creating us and speaking us, bringing us into existence. At this very moment on our own, we are in a state of non-being and non-existence. We absolutely don't exist. So therefore you need a constant energy and force, creative divine energy to bring us into existence. And therefore, of course nothing happens in this world without Hashem. And then it doesn't sound so radical, but the verse says that when Shimmy cursed King David... King David said, God told him to curse. Because the fact that it even entered his mind to curse. The thought even entered his mind, that even entertained the thought. Let alone to actually speak and to curse. If it wasn't decreed in heaven, if God didn't want this to happen, there's no way in the world it's possible for it even to happen. Because without Hashem there's nothing. It's not like God interferes and once in a while God intervenes and shows that He's there. There is nothing else. There is nothing else but God. So nothing happens in this world without Hashem. So for a person, it's a fact that, that Shem even had this thought to curse King David. If this was not God's will, this thought wouldn't even exist in the universe. The fact that it entered his mind, this idea to curse King David, is because King David says, God wants me to be cursed. Now, of course, Shimi had to reject that thought. What Shimi did was wrong. It's treason. And he paid dearly for it. And he paid with his life. The hands of King Solomon. To atone for his terrible, egregious sin. God did not want him to succumb to this thought. But the fact that he had the thought, and the fact that he was able to open his mouth and to speak, it's only because Hashem wanted this to happen to King David. 
one way or the other it was going to happen to King David. Whether through Shimmy, through someone else, King David was going to have this experience. He was going to be inconvenienced and he was going to be insulted and he was going to be hurt. And God wanted him. That was between Hashem and King David. Whatever the reason, God wanted to break his heart, whatever it is. But that was going to happen one way or the other. So that's why he tells Yoav and he tells his entourage. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Shimei. How dare he speaks like that to the king? It's treason. He deserves to die. Says, why are you getting angry at him? What? He? He is cursing him. Who is he? He is cursing him. Hashem runs this world. Let's not forget that for a moment. We get upset about certain things. We get angry at certain things. We get angry at people. We get angry. How can I do this? How could this happen? How could you let this happen? How Relax. If Hashem didn't want this to happen, this wouldn't happen. Simple as that. Not only Hashem runs this world, there's no other reality but Hashem. So where's the free will? Yes, he had, Shimei had free will to reject this thought. God did not want him to curse King David. It was wrong for him to curse King David. It was immoral for him to curse King David. And he paid for it with his life. He had freedom of choice. And had he chosen wisely and followed Hashem's wish not to entertain this thought and not to act on this thought, Hashem would have found other messengers to accomplish his goal to inconvenience King David. But the fact that this thought even existed, even entered his mind is because this thought exists in the universe because Hashem placed it there. Hashem wants this. So therefore, King David is not addressing Shimei's free will and his bad choices that he made. He did later on. He's going to have to pay for his bad choices. But the question here is, I'm getting angry. I'm not getting angry because he made a bad choice. Because otherwise I would be angry at every person in this world that's making bad choices. Other people doing bad choices doesn't upset me. When I see someone else making a bad choice and hurting someone else, I don't think they get excited. We're talking about, I'm getting excited because his bad choice affected me. He hurt me. He insulted me. He inconvenienced me. How dear. He caused me a loss. He hurt me. He harmed me. So I'm not angry because of his bad choice. I'm angry because you hurt me. So the Baal Shem says, Why are you kidding? He hurt you. He hurt you. There is no he. There is no All there is is Hashem. What? He hurt you. Hashem decided. This is going to happen. If not through him, then Hashem has many agents. If Hashem would not have decided this should happen to you, this could not happen to you. It would never happen to you. It would never even enter his mind to hurt you, to harm you, to insult you, to inconvenience you. So it's between you and Hashem. You're upset because this happened, not because of his bad choice, his poor choices. If you're upset purely because of poor choices, you'll be upset at everyone in this world doesn't bother me. People's poor choices don't bother me. Especially not my own. It's his poor choice affected me. You hurt my pinky. <laughs> now, people, people care more about the, their pinky hurting and millions of people dying and butchered you know, uh, halfway around the world. What do I care? As long as it doesn't happen to me. My pinky is hurt. It's the end of the world. That's what upsets me. Let's be honest. You're upset about something that happened to you has nothing to do with it. 
the, the, even the thought, the fact that the person even had a thought to harm you. If Hashem would not think it, it wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he couldn't think it. And if Hashem didn't want this to happen, he, he couldn't open his mouth. The words wouldn't come to him. It just wouldn't happen. It happened because Hashem wanted this. Directly from Hashem. And therefore, why am I getting upset at him? Don't turn him into a god. Don't worship him. It's the last thing you want to do. It's someone you're angry at. Turn him into a deity and start bowing down to him and worshiping. Even though this characteristic of war to flow downward is also created and innovated ex nihilo, as the Rebbe Shlit explains, not only the water itself, but also its characteristic of fluidity was created ex nihilo. Thus, when the wind caused the water to stand like a stone wall, this fluid nature had only to be replaced by the capability of a solid so that it could stand erect. Nevertheless, since this quality is uncharacteristic of water, the innovation had to be constantly and continuously brought about by the power that first made it possible. Indeed, were the wind to cease, the water would have reverted to its former self. Thus, even when they, a yesh is merely changed into another yesh, the activity force must be constantly present. The Alt Rebbe now goes on to show how the property of fluidity is not intrinsic to water, but must be created within it. Certain characteristics do not need to be created separately from a particular being, for they are intrinsic to all created beings. For example, all created beings occupy space. Water, however, need not necessarily flow. Other created beings exist quite happily without this property, and when water exists as a solid, as ice, it too possesses the quality of rigidity. The quality of fluidity is thus not intrinsic to water. So you can't say that as long as you have water, water must flow. You have water, it could be in a solid state, and, and it doesn't flow. So it's like a, an added-on characteristic to water. And um, therefore, it's easier to conceive that it could be changed, miraculously, but it could be changed to uh, have the characteristics of a solid. This is what the Alter Rebbe now goes on to say. For a wall of stone stands erect by itself without the assistance of any wind, but the nature of water is not so. As stated above, the property of fluidity was something that Hashem created within the already existing entity of water. Though the wind had only to change one yesh to another, replacing the property of fluidity by the property of solidity, this is still considered a wondrous event. And in order for this to have been accomplished, the activating force, in this case the wind, had to be working constantly. How much more will this be the case, the Alter Rebbe will soon conclude, with regard to creating a yesh out of utter nothing? And indeed, the divine source responsible for the innovation of the entire universe out of nothing must be consistently vested within it in order to enable it to endure and not to revert to nothingness. Such a corollary should have been imperative, even according to the philosophers. They thus err on two grounds, in their above-mentioned reliance on a misleading analogy and in their failure to realize that the activating force must constantly be invested within the created being. Thus, to resume the above argument, if for the miraculous splitting of the Red Sea that only involved the changing of one yesh to another, the continuous action of Hashem was necessary, how much more so with respect to the creation of an existent 
being out of nothing. But this transcends nature and is far more wondrous than the splitting of the Red Sea. Surely, if the creative power that creates an existent being out of nothing were heaven pretend to be withdrawn from a created being, that being would revert to utter naught and non-existence. Rather, the activating force of the creator, which initially brings every created being into existence, must continuously be present within the thing created to give it life and continued existence. This force is the word of Hashem and the breath of His mouth that are to be found in the ten utterances by which the universe was created. The ten utterances are the source of the letters of speech by means of which all of creation is brought into existence. Moreover, as explained in the first chapter of Sha'ar Hayyichud Amuna, even those created beings which are not specifically mentioned in the ten utterances likewise derive their vitality from the ten utterances by means of various combinations, substitutions, and transpositions of these letters. That's why he explained that everything has a Hebrew name. Everything that exists has a Hebrew name because this name is the divine energy that creates it. So there are many, many divine energies. Every entity has its own unique divine energy. And it's based on the, the shape and the combination of the, the Hebrew letters. And everything is rooted in the ten utterances um, as he explained, I may have substitutions and numerical values and um, there are so many ways to combine and to, to different substitute alphabets, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and it's like, it's like in chemistry, you mix different chemicals differently you end up with different results so everything, every human being, every one of us everything created being has its own unique name which is channels the divine energy that gives it life and sustains it. God creates the world with the Hebrew language, with the Hebrew name. That's why it's Lashna Kodesh. It's a holy language, unlike any other language. So this energy, this force, divine creative force, which is Hashem's speech, this is constantly, Hashem is constantly speaking, Hashem's words and letters are constantly bringing us into existence. And even as regards the physical earth and its inorganic component, earth possesses a potential koach atzmeach that enables vegetation to grow. In the case of created beings that are part of the vegetative realm, growth does visibly testify to the presence of an activating force. Created being of the inanimate or inanimate or inorganic realm that is represented in the earth demonstrate no signs of life at all. He says earth? And he specifies the inanimate. So if earth is referring to earth, literally earth, dust, earth, that's also inanimate. So what's he saying? And the inanimate. Because he's distinguishing that earth, even though it's inanimate, but it, it has the creative life, it has the creative force, the creative energy. You plant a seed into the earth and everything grows from the earth. Renewable life, renewable growth. Versus doimem is within earth, itself, within inorganic, there's like a stone, it sits there, there's no growth, there's nothing. It just exists, that's it. No, doesn't, no sign of life at all. But the Rebbe says, that he interprets it, that when he says, even this earth, he's not referring to the element of earth. He's referring to earth versus heaven. God created heaven and earth. Not only the heavens and the spiritual realms. 
are created through the ten utterances, but even earth, meaning this whole physical world, this physical, tangible world, with, with all the life that's in it, which is human and animal and organic life. And he says, and even the lowest element, which is the, the, the element of the inorganic, uh, even that also is sustained created and sustained and has a life, has the divine creative energy by the divine creative energy. So everything has a soul, everything has an energy that's creating and a constant energy and a continuous energy. And it takes a tremendous amount of energy to maintain this unnatural state. Nature is the most unnatural thing in the world. That's what he's trying to bring out to impress upon us. We take nature for granted. We take existence for granted. We don't even question it. We don't even stop for a moment. People go through their entire lives and don't stop for a moment to question that underlying assumption of I, existence, nature. Mother nature, it feels so, so natural. That's where all conversations end. Mother nature. And that's it. He stopped thinking, wondering, questioning. Nature. He says, nature is the most unnatural thing in the world. And it takes an inordinate amount of energy to maintain this, this unnatural state. Nature is the, most, is the greatest miracle. You think the splitting of the sea is a miracle? He's telling you. The fact that there is a cup of water is a greater miracle. That's why every time a Jew stops and drinks a cup of water, I'm thirsty. It's a Wednesday afternoon, I'm grabbing a cup of water, I'm not even thinking about it. A Jew stops and makes a bracha, makes a blessing. Because a Jew realizes this, the existence of this water is a more astonishing miracle than the splitting of the sea, the greatest miracle in the Torah. The fact that there is existence at all, period. Nature is the most unnatural thing. It makes absolutely no sense. We question the whole underlying assumption of existence. Why should we exist? Where is this coming from? No rhyme and no reason. It's not a logical sequence, a logical conclusion. Of course, naturally, of course, we should exist. Makes absolutely no sense. There's no rhyme, there's no reason in the world we should exist. We don't exist in our source. It's not like the baby in the mother's womb. Obviously, it's natural that the baby will emerge. If there's an idea, naturally, it gives birth to an emotion. That's logical. That's sequential. That's, that makes sense. That's something from something. One thing leads to the next. A chain reaction. One thing leads to the next. One chain leads to the next chain. If there are emotions, it makes sense. It's going to give birth to a thought. If there's thought, it gives birth to speech. If there's speech, it gives birth to action. But physical, material existence... There's no rhyme, there's no reason. Why Why should it exist? So nature is the most unnatural thing in the world. Existence, I, is the most unnatural thing in the world. And it takes an inordinate amount of energy to maintain this existence. It's the great, most astonishing miracle. And yet we're like blind, deaf, and dumb to it. So much so you have even fools who deny it. Deny that there's a God. Deny that there's godliness. This is a godly, creative, divine, creative energy. Nature. I don't need nature. Nature. That's the biggest proof that there's a God. 
<laughs> it's the most unnatural thing in the world. There's a constant godly energy, divine energy, that's constantly bringing us into existence. God is so engaged, involved with us, creating us, sustaining us. It's the ultimate astonishment, and yet we wear blinders, completely oblivious. That's the most astonishing thing of all. Now, the Rebbe is trying to reason and to argue with those who believe something from something. Don't get it. Don't appreciate Jewish faith. The opening lines in the Torah, which is the whole foundation of Judaism. Bereshit barakim. In the beginning, God created something from nothing. If you get that, you get everything. If you don't get that, you get nothing. If you truly understand creation, something from that, nature is the ultimate miracle, nature is the ultimate, most astonishing event, and there has to be this constant divine energy to create this in, inordinate amount of energy to maintain this unnatural state that we call nature. <laughs> then you wake up and you realize Hashem is here, Hashem is all over, Hashem is here, all around me, within me. Hashem is right here, all within me, all around me. What we call nature, that's nothing other than Hashem, the divine creative energy. So it's not that I'm looking, I'm looking for Hashem. I need a miracle. If Hashem split the Hudson, if we're able to cross through the East River, <laughs> if lice fell from, if lice suddenly fell, if hail started falling, if something unusual happened, then I would wake up and sing hallelujah and become aware of Hashem. Are you kidding me? Look in the mirror. <laughs> you woke up. It's the greatest miracle. That's more <laughs> astonishing than the splitting of the East River and the splitting of the Hudson. And all the ten plagues combined and the splitting of the sea. The fact that there is a cup of water that you and I exist is the most astounding, astonishing miracle. It takes this powerful energy, this powerful energy, this creative energy, this to constantly pull off this, this miracle. So you're looking for Hashem? <laughs> I just wanted to say that um, you know, the fact that uh, there's so much energy like this, people who are atheists, you know, people I know who are atheists, that must be to the extent that there's anti-energy. You know, in other words, the the f- energy and the force that makes them so strong in their belief that they're atheists, it has to be like an equal and opposite force. Yeah. That's, the thing I don't understand is, good the, point. is the, where does evil fit into this creation? To, where does it come from? So evil, evil comes from the distortion. When we take nature for granted and we are completely oblivious to godliness and to Hashem. Instead of being in awe of God, we become in awe of ourselves. We start worshipping our own minds, our own brains. Then we become spiritually crippled. We become spiritually ill unhealthy you know the sign of a health is the sign of a healthy person is 
when they are unselfconscious. A healthy person doesn't feel himself. When you walk down the street, you don't feel your limbs. Thank God you don't feel your body. You don't feel you're like a bag, a sack of bones and limbs and <laughs> fluids and <laughs> sinew. And you're completely unselfconscious. You're light. The moment you start feeling yourself, there's Lennox Hill to the right, there's Sloan to the south, uh, New York Cornell, Mount Sinai to the north, hospital special surgery, you better check in quickly. <laughs> Something is wrong. You know that you're sick and very sick. The more you feel yourself, only a sick person feels himself. Same is true spiritually. A healthy person has no ego. A healthy person, like a healthy body, is completely egoless, completely unified with the soul, with Hashem. You're thinking about how Hashem is constantly creating you. You're astonished by this ongoing miracle, this inordinate amount of energy, divine creative energy that's constantly creating us and sustaining us. You're just in awe. Instead of being in awe of yourself and worshipping yourself, you put on a yarmulke and you worship Hashem. You're in awe of Hashem. And you're humble. And you're human and humane and kind and sensitive because you're not egotistical. It's the biggest sign of ego is how you treat other people. An egotistical, arrogant, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed person. And by the way, spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. You're so spiritually self-wrapped in yourself and spiritually self-absorbed. Then it's all about ego. It's not about, it's not about Hashem. A person who's truly godly, who's truly egoless, the test is, how kind are you? How good are you to other people? How loving are you? Loving and kind to other people. And good and wholesome. Unselfconscious. And that's why we wish the child, by the bris, we say, right after the bris, everyone says together, out loud, just like this eight-day-old boy enters into the bris, to the covenant, so too he should enter the Torah, to Torah, to Chuppah, to marriage, and Maizim Torah and good things. What's the connection? Just like he entered the bris, so you should enter. What we're wishing this child is that just like he fulfilled his first mitzvah, eight days old, it's his mitzvah. He's completely unselfconscious. He has no idea what's going on. <laughs> totally unselfconscious. So too the rest of your life. When you grow into adulthood. And you grow into maturity. And you reach bar mitzvah and even chuppah and marriage. To be a total adult to get married. And, then, and good deeds. Your life. What kind, how you should fulfill the Torah and the good deeds the same way. As you did the birth. Unselfconscious. Egoless. You should be God-centered instead of ego-centered and I-centered. Your whole life should be being in awe and being constantly astonished and astounded by this divine miracle called existence and life. All the scientists in the world can create the life of a firefly. Life is, is a miracle. That There is life. It's a divine, miraculous occurrence. Life. Where does life come from? Life is not a mechanical event. It's not a building block. I put together a body made of blocks and then I have life. Life is a miracle. It comes from within. There's no explanation. It's a divine miracle. 
we're just disconnected so we don't sense it but the truth is it's, 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 it's an astonishing miracle it's an open revealed miracle life exists so all our life we should be constantly serve God with the same wholesomeness in an unselfconscious way in an egoless way which of course is the key ingredient in chuppah to have a good marriage the less egotistical we are and the more egoless we are the more kind we'll be the better spouse we'll be we'll be a good spouse a loving and caring husband and spouse and a loving and caring parent so this is what we wish the child so this is where evil comes from when a person forgets when a person in holiness there's no forgetfulness how could you forget God is creating you at each and every moment you don't forget for a moment. How can I forget? I'm constantly in awe. I'm constantly inspired. I'm constantly thinking about it. That's why we make a hundred blessings. A Jew makes a hundred blessings every single day. An hour doesn't go by. We don't make a blessing. We're constantly making blessings. We're constantly reminding ourselves and, and aware and conscious of the reality of godliness and this constantly astounded and astonished and inspired and moved and encouraged and strengthened by the truth of Hashem. We pray three times a day. We're constantly doing a mitzvah, learning Torah. We're constantly connected, even with going about our business. This is my mission as a Jew. I'm connected. I'm eating. It's also part of my mission. My table is my altar. I'm elevating the food. Whatever, I'm I'm constantly connected. 24-7. But when a person forgets, forget on Hashem that's where evil comes from you know all it takes to block out the world you know what it takes to block out the whole world it doesn't take much one little finger put your finger in front of your eyes and suddenly you're blind the world turns dark that ego that little ego you feel so natural feel so natural you feel so comfortable with you so complacent so smug, so satisfied with yourself, so proud in a foolish way, pride, not good pride, foolish pride. You black out the whole world. You stop seeing anyone around you. You stop seeing Hashem, and the two go hand in hand. If you don't see Hashem, every atheist is an arrogant. Ask the people who have to live with him. Arrogant. Impossible. Selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. If you don't see Hashem, you don't see other people either. Could be brilliant, but they're so taken by their own brilliance. They're the first ones to tell you how brilliant they are. (laughs) They just can't get over themselves. They worship themselves, and they are in awe of themselves. It's sad, it's funny, but it's sad. Anyone who's in awe of Hashem, who senses Hashem, senses other people as well. The two go hand in hand. Can't separate the two. So that's where all evil comes from. The darkness. We create our own hell on earth. We create the darkness. Cover up. Nature covers up. Nature feels so natural. It's the biggest lie. 
Nature is the most unnatural thing in the world. You think a miracle is unnatural? Nature is unnatural. But it's the ultimate cover-up. It's aggressive. Nature is not innocent. It's aggressive. It covers up. Nothing. It's nothing. It's natural. That's where all evil comes from. That's where it originates. The hiding. The concealment. The distortion. So why do Satyagam die? Because of us. <laughs> because we're all connected. And... Um, the fact that there's so much ego in this world and so much arrogance in this world and so much lies and distortion that they can't help but be affected because we're all connected. When God created the world, Adam was egoless. That's why him and Chava were naked. There was no shame. They were egoless. There was no, they were unselfconscious, like children running around. Unselfconscious. Children running around naked. They're unselfconscious. No shame. They were pure, innocent, wholesome. And he would have lived forever. Then he became self-aware. He became egotistical. As a result of eating, he became egotistical, self-aware, which degraded the whole universe and, and mingled good and evil became mingled and mixed and confused and darkness. He was expelled from the Garden of Eden. This world was a Garden of Eden. And then this world became the opposite. So it's all a result of our actions, our behavior, and our attitudes. So we are in the driver's seat. That's the good news. We are the agents of change. It's all up to us. That's what we've, that's what we've been working on for the last 3,800 years, to change, to bring back the Garden of Eden. Once again, this world will become a garden of By studying the Tanya and studying Hasidus, and studying the teachings of Hashem and getting beyond our ego and learning once again to be astonished and astounded and be in awe of Hashem and be aware of the reality of Hashem and, and that nature is even more unnatural than the miracles, is more astounding than the miraculous and see Hashem in everything and all day and every day and every aspect of our lives and live accordingly. And once you accomplish that, that it, this is Messianic, this is Mashiach, this is Torah, this is Judaism, this is, this is bringing, bringing us back to the Garden of Eden, this is bringing back Hashem, bringing back the light, bringing back the consciousness and the awareness and the truth and the reality and the ultimate truth. And the truth is, all roads today lead to, to Jerusalem. Everything we're learning here, is, this, is all, this is what modern physicists teach. Matter is energy. It's dynamic. It's vibrant. It appears to be rigid and flat. Nothing can be further than the truth. The world is, the energy is constantly transforming. The atoms are constantly transforming itself into matter. The atom is 99.9% empty. Once you get to the depth of the atom, there's nothing there. It's this powerful energy swirling that creates a sense of solidity. Nothing is the way it appears to be. I mean, it's miraculous. Quantum mechanics, I mean, it's all miraculous. It defies human logic and understanding. You get to the, the depth of, the, of reality, you realize it's all infinite. It's all... Now we know that the whole known universe is only 5% of the universe. 95% of the universe is dark matter, dark energy. We don't know. We can't know. 
you know, today, everything, whatever the, today's science in the laboratory are coming to the same realizations and conclusions that Jews have known for thousands of years. The difference is that the Torah tells you how to live accordingly. Based on these truths, it has to change your life. It has to dramatically transform and challenge and change your life. The scientist in the lab is learning all these fascinating things, but so what? You know, at the end of the day, he goes home and nothing changed in his personal life, in his daily life. It doesn't... In Torah, all these truths are translated into... What do you mean, so what? So what? You have to wake up differently, you have to live differently, you have to act differently, you have to behave differently. But everything is re- re- leading to these truths and to these realizations. Robert, I just wanted to ask you about your... Um uh, previous comment. So uh, you mentioned that uh, you know your friend would not is not offending you because that's what he's thinking about. It's just uh, he's an agent of God. And uh, on the one hand, on the, on the other hand, uh, that uh, Adam made this choice to eat the apple, and we are in the driver's seat. How these two um, uh, kind of uh, aspects go uh, hand in hand, and how they balance each other. You know, we can uh, chew our gum and tie our shoes at the same time. And many things happening in many different dimensions. What you're saying is what Adam cried out to Hashem. He says, the whole thing is just a libel against me. You know, you wanted me to sin for whatever reason. And now you're blaming me. (laughs) Obviously, if you didn't want this to happen, it would never have happened. So, obviously, the fact that it happened means that you wanted it to happen. And now you're blaming me, and you're punishing me, and you're... And the truth is, you know, as the rabbi said, you know, the famous story, the husband and wife come for counseling, and the rabbi first speaks to, to the husband, and he asks, and he listens sympathetically, and he says, you know, you're right, you're right. And he says, it's all the wife's fault, and... And then he sends the husband out, calls the wife in, and he listens to the wife, and he's listening to her complaints. He says, oh, you're right, you're right. You know, it's all the husband's fault. And when he sends her out, the Rebetzin comes in, and he says, is his husband dear? I don't get it. How could he be right? How could the husband be right? And the wife be right at the same time. The rabbi listens to her sympathetically. He says, you know, you're right also. <laughs> you're also right. So everyone is right. Um, there's truth in everything. Ultimately, anything to happen, especially if you understand what we're discussing now, how Hashem creates the world each and every moment. Not only is God the soul of the world, but there is nothing else. All there is is God. There's not a soul and a body. There aren't two entities. All there is is God. There is nothing else. If you truly understand it, nothing in the world happens without Hashem. So, if Hashem didn't want this to happen, I, I wouldn't even have the choice of entertaining this thought, especially implementing this, 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 this deed. So obviously if it happened, Hashem wanted that. On the other hand, I'm not acting as an agent of God. I didn't do it because I'm an agent of God. I did it because I made a terrible choice. God told me in the Torah, don't do this. He doesn't want me to do it. He wants me to reject this thought. He doesn't want me to entertain the thought, especially not to implement it. So if I go ahead and implement it, entertain it, and let alone implement it, I chose something negative and I created a negative energy and I brought the negative energy and I did damage and I have to mend and fix and take care of it. Now, the ultimate divine goal, the ultimate divine plan is that, you know, there's powerful energies 
in the negative there's very powerful energies the Kabbalah talks about the breaking of the vessels the shattering of the vessels very precious wine imagine very precious wine and the most precious cups and shatter and everything falls down into the dust into the dirt into the mud this precious wine this precious glass is now in the dirt this was at the source this was something very precious it just fell very low to the dirt the falling fallen angels falling the falling down the shattering of the vessels so the fact is that they're very holy sparks very holy energy the root and source of all this shattering you know we live in a very morally shattered world in a very broken world but the root and the source of this world is very deep, very high root, very powerful energy. And the goal, why Hashem even allows us and enables us and allows us to fall and to make these terrible mistakes and to find ourselves in these egregious, horrible circumstances, which is so dark and the mistakes are so terrible, and the damage that we've done is so egregious is because the divine goal is that we should do teshuva and we should elevate these powerful sparks and powerful energies that are found in these negatives that's what we find you know temptation to do to violate to do a sin is much more powerful much more intense and temptations to do something good. That's why you know if, you, if the temptation is too strong, you got to suspect something is not kosher. <laughs> something is kosher that doesn't have that such an appeal. <laughs> the same appeal. But something is not, and the more not kosher it is, the stronger the appeal. The junkier it is, <laughs> the stronger the appeal, the, the temptation. So drunk lifestyle, the drunker the life, drunkier the lifestyle, the more negative, the more evil, the more is a powerful energy, a bacchanalian energy, a very raw, chaotic energy that's found. It's in the mud. But it comes from a very, very high and holy source. And the mission of a Jew is if God forbid he does sin, he does fail, he does stumble, the ultimate mission is that he should elevate those sparks and elevate those holy sparks and return it back to its source. So, you're right. On one hand, nothing happens without Hashem. So if Hashem would not want this, we could never even choose to find ourselves in such dire circumstances. But on the other hand, that's not the reason we sinned. We didn't sin because we got a divine communique that we're so in tune with God's wish that we sinned. No, we sinned because uh, we were foolish. Because we were mindless. Because we were acting without seichel and acting in a totally mindless way, in a totally selfish, egotistical way. So the sin came from a very negative place. It didn't come from a positive place. It came from a very dark place. Immature place. So we have to fix that. We create damage. When you sin, you do tremendous damage. Darkness, damage, negativity. You harm, you hurt. Yourself, the universe, Hashem Himself is heart and is her heart harmed in her. So you have to do teshuva. But ultimately, there's a bigger plan, bigger picture, and the bigger picture and bigger plan is Hashem 
allowed us to be in the, under these circumstances in order that, that we should uh, to shuva and redeem even these sparks, the holiest of all sparks that fell in the lowest place. But you're right. This does give us encouragement. Understanding this does give us encouragement. Because no matter how low a Jew falls, it's never too late. If you truly understand that everything is divine providence, and everything as we understand here, we're discussing here, if you take it to its logical conclusion that God is creating the world, there's no other reality but God. So if there's no other reality but God, nothing could happen in this world unless, if Hashem didn't want this to happen, it's not happening. Because there are no two entities. All there is is God, there is nothing else. So I, I, how would I even entertain the thought? How can I, let alone to implement it, if God didn't want ultimately this to happen? So if you truly understand that, it gives you encouragement. Don't feel lost. Don't feel that all doors are shut. That you're so disconnected. I behaved so egregiously. I chose so badly. I slapped the face, slapped Hashem's face. I, I slapped him in the face. I slammed the door. I'm so far gone, I can never come home. If you truly understand this idea of divine providence, you always connect. And when you sin, we're like a, an agent that's working behind enemy lines. <laughs> the home front will deny any connection to you. We don't know you. If you're caught, you're on your own. But you're, 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 you're working for us. We're always working for Hashem. Never give up hope. We're always working for Hashem. We're always on a mission. And no matter how low, how low we fall, there's nothing in the world that can... A tshuva doesn't help. Nothing. Even when the heavenly voice came and said that the Alisha ben Acher, everyone could do tshuva except Alisha, the Talmud says, had he pushed himself and, and done tshuva, pushed his foot into the door, he would have been accepted. It's never too late. There's no such thing as too far gone. Well, for me, tshuva, I'm too far gone. No such thing. Never. Because we're always connected. We're always working for Hashem. Because there is nothing else but Hashem. So no matter where you are, no matter what circumstances you find yourself, you're so connected, you don't even realize. So don't give up hope. Don't lose hope. Don't be depressed. Don't lose hope. There's always hope. There's always possibilities. And that's the whole reason why Hashem allowed you in the first place to stumble and to find yourself in this sorrowful state. Sorry state. So it's a, it's a very profound, it's a very good question. It's a very profound understanding which leads to a very profound changes in attitudes. Not to lose your temper in another person, give you pause before you lose your temper. How you approach negative situations gives you tremendous fortitude, tremendous strength. Not to become sour and bitter. It's so easy to become twisted. People, negative things happen to them, they become twisted and sour, and they become like vinegar. You know, it's like sarcastic. And when you have this faith and you have this understanding, there's no other reality but Hashem, you keep, 
it keeps you optimistic, it keeps you uplifted, wholesome, no matter what happens. You're alive. There's hope. Change is possible. You know, it keeps your head above, above water. It's a very powerful, one of the most powerful letters. It seems like every letter we're learning is the most <laughs> powerful letter. But, but uh, it's very unique, very special, uh, very powerful, profound. It's the only letter, the only place in the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, defends the Baal Shem Tov, openly. And, he, and this is the one example that was published. Many things about Shem, but this is, it seems like such a radical statement and aroused such opposition. And Alter Rebbe and the children chose to use this one single example. Because this really gets to the crux of a whole Hasidic revolution and a whole Hasidic philosophy and approach and understanding and the depth that it revealed in our faith in Hashem, what it ultimately means to have faith in Hashem and the unity of Hashem and the absolute unity of Hashem and how the world is completely nullified before Hashem. And what that means is that a Jew realizes, I'm not looking for miracles. You think miracles are astounding? Not nature. Nature is the most unnatural thing. Nature is the greatest miracle. Baal Shem Tov said there's no difference between nature and miracles. The only difference is nature happens all the time, so we get used to it. But nature, as it's explaining here, is, the mo- is more astounding, is the most astounding miracle of all. And yet it feels so natural. But that's the con. That's the darkness. That's the lie. That's the distortion. That's the con. This world is, is a con artist. Nature is a con artist. Don't be taken in. Don't be fooled. It feels so natural. It puts you to sleep. It's, it's a con. Nature is the most astounding, astonishing. The tzaddik looks at this world and he's, he's in awe. He's constantly astounded and astonished by the ongoing miracle. He, he's in awe of Hashem. He's constantly thinking about Hashem 24-7. When he eats, when he drinks, when he sleeps. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Not only on Shabbat, on a holiday, on Yom Kippur, when he's standing at the Western Wall, the day he's getting married. Every day, all day. He can't seize but be amazed and astonished by... To him, nature is the greatest revelation of godliness. You're looking for Hashem. Don't, you don't have to look far. It's right here. We're so intimate with Hashem. We're so tight. We're so connected. We're so, Hashem is within me. Hashem is all around me. Hashem is everywhere. And this caused the Baal Shem Tov got the Jews to dance again. Don't forget the times of the Baal Shem Tov, Jews were crushed. Jews felt hopeless. Jews were demoralized. It was after the Chalmanitsky and after Shabti Tzvi and they were in exile for close, close, over 1700 years and they, you know, they were like the whole world was galloping ahead of them leaving them behind. They were totally lost. And the Vashamtav made millions of Jews all over the world sing again. Taught them to sing. To celebrate. Celebrate of their, their Jewishness. He brought the Jewish people, he brought them back to life, revived them, resuscitated, resuscitated them, brought them back to life. So this is because of this deep philosophy, this deep understanding of the unity of Hashem that Hashem to reveal. And we have the merit of, and Alter Rebbe explained and articulated so well, and we have the merit to be able to learn it and to study it. Now 24-6, lessonsintanya.com, all over the world. But this is, this is life-changing. This, this is life-altering. This changes your whole awareness, your whole understanding. And if your awareness changes, it has to change and affect your emotions as well.
if your understanding is, is so much more profound and so much deeper, it has to totally revolutionize and change your whole attitude and approach and emotions. This is the first time you're learning Tanya? I think pretty much, yeah. Wow, <laughs> wow. You chose the right, uh, the right uh, entree. <laughs> Hashem chose it for you, you see? You see? Somebody's paying attention. <laughs> okay. Continue. No, 100%. That's right. See? Unbelievable. You see, we were supposed to meet. You could have met any other time, but Hashem orchestrated it. Amazing. Created beings that are part of the inanimate or inorganic realm that is represented in the earth demonstrate no signs of life at all, not even growth. Their life force and continued existence is the word of Hashem. That is to be found in the ten utterances. That is vested in them, maintaining them as inorganic matter and as substantiality ex nihilo, so that they will not revert to the absolute north and nothingness they had been prior to their creation. And this is in the meaning of the statement of Rabbi Isaac Luria, of blessed memory, that there is a kind of soul and spiritual life force, even in the inorganic matter, such as stones and dust and water, entities that display no signs of life. This soul and spiritual life force is the word of Hashem, the, the, the potent divine speech that continuously creates all beings, i.e. the Shekhinah. Sounds like a very strange statement that Arizal says that everything has a soul including the stone, which shows no sign of life. What do you mean it has a soul? It doesn't budge, it doesn't move, it doesn't grow. At least something organic grows. Earth has the power to grow. But a stone? But the truth is, everything has a soul. Because the divine energy is constantly creating it, bringing it into existence. And it has a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name Evan is the channel, Aleph, Beis, Nun, and the combination of Aleph, Beis, Nun is the channel through which the divine energy um, constantly creates and sustains and all the characteristics of a stone which come with the stone all are created and the uniqueness of the stone all are created by the Hebrew letters, the divine energy and how it's channeled and how it's put together. It has its own unique divine energy. So everything in the world really has a, has a soul. Matter is energy. Everything has a soul. So if we understand that everything has a soul, so therefore nothing, nothing is what it seems. Nothing is... Don't take anything at face value. You look at a stone, all I see is a stone. But it depends how you look. You know, there was a great uh, Hasidic Rebbe. He was named after the Baal His name was Rabbi Shrol Kajnitz. So he once told his son, he says, you know, I am not a body, I am a pure soul. So his son immediately touched him. He says, Tate, ich tapkuf, I'm touching body. What do you mean you're not a body? I, I'm touching your body. <laughs> so the father smiled. And he said, this was like in, in the Polish accent. He says, give, tap, give. Body touches the body. You're a body, so all you see and all you notice and all you see is body. But if you were a soul, you would see I'm pure soul.
You see a body, but I'm not a body. I'm a person. And it's even reflected in Jewish law. All these ideas ultimately reflected in Jewish law, the Torah. Jewish law states on Shabbat, you're not allowed to carry from a private domain, a public domain, a public domain, a private domain. But in order to violate the prohibition of carrying, you have to carry a certain amount. It has to be a shear. Different things depending on the usage of it. So if a person, let's say, carries a few, t- t- a few seeds and, and it doesn't have it's a few tiny seeds and it doesn't have the shear, it doesn't have the amount that would be considered carrying. It's just too few. It doesn't have the proper amount. So even though you're carrying it out in a suitcase, the suitcase is big. The suitcase definitely has a shear, the required minimum requirement of carrying. It's a big suitcase. But the only reason I'm using the suitcase is to carry the seeds. So the Torah says, you have not violated the prohibition of carrying a Shabbos. But what do you mean? I'm carrying a suitcase. It's a huge suitcase. Yeah, but the only reason you're carrying a suitcase is just a container to hold the seeds. It's the content. Don't look at the suitcase. It's what's on the inside. The purpose. The purpose and the content is these few seeds. And the seeds, since the seeds don't pass muster and don't meet the minimum requirement, so the suitcase, I don't, I'm not looking at the suitcase. The suitcase doesn't count. All that counts, all that matters is the content, the point, what it's all about. So, of course, I see the suitcase, but legally, halachically, the halacha doesn't see the suitcase. What's the suitcase? Same thing is with the body and the soul. The body is a container for the soul. So for someone, a tzaddik, like the cousin Tzamagi, to him, the body, he says, I don't, I'm not a body. What do you mean you're not a body? I see a body. Yeah, but what's the body? The body is a suitcase. It's a container. It's to carry my soul. So I have a body. But, so therefore, the body, I don't see the body. Just like the halacha doesn't see the suitcase. All I see is the content, what's inside, the point, the purpose. So if it's just a container, it's just a means to an end to hold my soul, then, then what is the body? It's a soul. It's not a body. I don't see the body. I just see the soul. That's primary. That's all that matters. That's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm all about. That's who I am. But when a person is body, the container is not just a container. The container is an end in itself. I live for the body. I live to continue my existence, to have fun, to have pleasure, indulgence. Money, power, fame, that's what my life is all about, continuing my existence. And the body is a body. Then I see body. And the body is prominent. The body takes up space. The body is... So it all, it all shifts. It all depends on what's going on in the inside. If you have that clarity, then everything shifts. Then it's a different reality. You can have two people, and they're living in two different universes. This is a pure soul. The body is just a transparent container. It's just there, see-through. You see the soul. And soul. That's what the person is all about. He doesn't live to eat and to drink. He, he has, that's his containers. He has to take care of it. But it's just a means to an end. It's just a shell. And the main thing is the inside, the fruit. Versus a person who throws out the fruit. He has no time for the fruit. 
He has no time to pray, he has no time to learn, he has no time to do acts of kindness, to give tzedakah. He's so busy with the shell, that becomes prominent, and that's what he focuses on, then, then that's all you see. And that's where evil begins. <laughs> evil begins when everything is twisted, when the shell becomes primary, and you discard the fruit. If everyone, if, if to everyone the, the fruit was primary, and the shell was just a means to an end, this world would be a garden of Eden. Godliness would be transparent. Truth would be transparent. The less egotistical we are, the more egoless we are. Kinder, truthful, genuine, authentic, good, wholesome, this world would be a garden of Eden, literally. Without ego, 99.9% of human misery and human problems are solved. And today we know that even illnesses, the Zohar, had, it's written already in the Zohar, what science is discovering today, that illnesses are psychosomatic. The Zohar was written thousands of years ago, that illnesses are psychosomatic. Many illnesses, most of them are psychosomatic. When a person is either whatever, Whatever, whatever reason, whatever's going on in their lives. That's emotional, psychological, spiritual. So it affects, affects us. Affects us physically as well. If we're happy, if we're wholesome, if we're harmonious and connected, and if we're vibrant and alive, the more vibrant and alive we are spiritually and Jewishly, it translates into, spiritual, into physical health as well. can't separate it. The body-soul connection is very powerful. You can't... So everything has a soul. Instead of looking at the stone, Arizal saw the soul. He looked at the stone, he sees a soul. <laughs> Other people look at people and they see a stone. <laughs> An unmovable stone. A stone doesn't budge. You can sit there for years. Until you kick it, nothing happens. There are people who live like that. They're so complacent and so foolishly proud of themselves. Not of who. Proud of what they're becoming. Proud of who they are. Of their imbecilic, animalistic, childish, immature self. Selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed self, arrogant self. And they're so proud of it. Like a stone. I'm proud and I'm not changing. And I'm very happy. (laughs) The way I am. I'm not changing. I never will change. And how dare anyone even suggest that change is possible. If anyone suggests change is possible, they're going to be arrested. This is a spiritual stone, solus. And here there is all saying, not only does a human being have a soul, an animal have a soul, a tree has a soul, even a stone has a soul. Don't look at the stone. Look at the inside. Look at the real story, what's really happening. The divine energy that's creating it has a soul. But I see a stone. I don't see anything. Yeah. Body tops body. 
body touches body. So if you're a body, it's all you see. If you're a stone, all you see is a stone. But if, you see, if you're in touch with your own soul and you see the soul, the world is dynamic and vibrant and, and nature is the most unnatural thing and is the most astounding and astonishing miracle of all, then you realize that even the stone has a soul. Then I don't see a stone, I see a soul. I see divine energy, I see godliness, I see the miraculous. The fact that we exist, the fact that the stone exists is the greatest miracle of all. The possibilities and chances of this existing is impossible. An impossibility. Improbability. It's nothing less, nothing less astonishing. and it's, it's nothing short of a miracle. So I see that the stone is really alive and pulsating with energy and it's alive. It's a different world. Some people look at this world and even people are like stones. And Dariza looks at this world and he sees even the stone is alive. <laughs> it's two different universes. We're not living in the same world. We continue. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.